Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR. The demands of HR and payroll are endless. And that's why Zenium provides a complete solution for both so that you can focus on what you do best, which is growing your organization. Learn more about Zenium HR at zeniumhr.com. Today's episode is with Carla McLaren. She's an author, researcher, and workplace consultant. And we're talking about her most recent book, The Power of Emotions at Work. Carla shares a lot of insight for leaders on emotions in the workplace and how to foster emotional intelligence, strong communication strategies, and empathy all across the workplace. You're going to get a ton out of this episode. I can't wait to hear what you think. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places. I'd love to connect with you and feel free to direct message me as well. Enjoy and talk to you next week. Carla, it's a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. It's so nice to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about your book, The Power of Emotions at Work, Accessing the Vital Intelligence in Your Workplace. You've got a, a lot of data, especially in the intro, and, and I know you probably could pull all sorts of research and, and statistics, but let's just generally talk about what did the pandemic teach us about relationships at work? Because I think it probably highlighted some of the gaps that we have. I think a lot of people, especially essential workers who saw just how kind of thoughtlessly they were treated at first and then kind of brutally at this point where essential workers are being threatened by people who uh, don't want to mask up or whatever it is. But we've seen that that this whole sort of edifice of the workplace and, and what it is to be a, an essential worker or a worker at all, it's kind of... Um, it's all a lie. No, it's, it's not all a lie. But and for those who were able to go home or who were sent home, they were also able to see. Wow, pretty much ninety percent of meetings are not necessary. I like my own schedule of when I take breaks. It actually works better for me. So a lot of the control that is in the workplace, we're seeing that was never really necessary, but we couldn't see it until the whole thing fell apart. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. We couldn't see it. Do you think workers are in general, are they cared for or are they sort of treated like cogs in a machine from your perspective? Cogs in a machine, yes. Because that's the way, and I wouldn't go to any workplace and say, you know, you guys are the problem. It's the way that the workplace has been set up so that everyone really is a cog in the machine of whatever that workplace is doing. And some are nicer cogs and better machines, but (laughs) it's a very shiny machine that you're in. (laughs) Yeah, I imagine some employers have probably figured out even the ideas that you have in the book about bringing emotions to work and probably more humanity. I imagine some employers have figured this out, but in general, we're talking about like most employees are treated like cogs in a machine, right? Yeah, yeah. And that comes from you know, how you're counted, how you're paid, when you can take your breaks, you know, it's very, uh, very controlled. And that is one of our ideas about how you are with people as you control them. But what happens is if you are exerting exterior control on people, you will 
damage their motivation. So there's a lot of work. I think they're calling it employee engagement now. It just means motivation. Yeah. I think it's employee experience, employee engagement. They throw all those words around. Yeah, they have a lot of words. (laughs) Like, okay. (laughs) But without having autonomy and without having the dignity of making their own choices, any person will lose motivation. So a lot of the ways that we've set up the workplace and we didn't realize it, reduce motivation and reduce mental and emotional health in people. But this horrifying pandemic has taken so many people from us, and it has also showed us some of the deep truths about what our world is, you know? Mm-hmm. On the workplace environment, like mostly pre-pandemic, you, I think you refer to the open office layout as like the devil's layout or something like that. Hone in on that and why you, why you said that. <laughs> devil's, the devil's floor plan. Oh, there you um, go. Yeah. Yeah. Now I came to this understanding of the problems with an open environment through my master's thesis. I was studying autism and how autistic kids are taught. And many of them are in special ed. And in special ed, it's generally a classroom that wasn't ever sort of meant to be a classroom. And there's tables around which the kids sit. And there might be kids from the fourth grade over here working on math and third grade over here working on English, blah, blah, blah. And what we find with special education is the children do worse when they're taken into those kind of classroom environments. So why, if they're getting personal care? It turns out that the sound of other humans talking near you is an extremely difficult thing for your brain to filter because it's called irrelevant, meaningful noise meaning it's irrelevant to you, but it's meaningful because your brain is focused on human speech. So you can learn to work in an environment where a lot of human voices are making irrelevant speech, like into their phone, right? Or or they're having a meeting near you. But it is an incredible cognitive load to expect people to do that. And when children are in environments like that, they used to be an open school environment, their uh, language scores plummet because they can't focus. And it's almost like having someone poke you in the arm and say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know, every five seconds while you're trying to focus on whatever it is you're doing. So the open office environment is terrible for cognition. It is terrible for focus. And they've shown that when people go from a normal environment with walls to an open office environment, even though it's supposed to um, be the land of milk and honey and everybody's going to collaborate, that interpersonal communication drops by 70% immediately because people are overwhelmed. You wrote that, quote, the workplace is a social and emotional disaster, end quote. Why do, why do you say that? Is it is it the way, <laughs> you know, we just talked about the, the devil's floor plan? Is yeah. it, you know, so work environment or is it, you know, people can't bring them their whole selves to work? Is it a combination of all those? Why do you say that? Well, one of the things is that we've thrown the emotions out so that when someone feels or expresses an emotion that isn't happiness in the workplace, sort of everything goes, (laughs) you know, and humans are emotional beings and emotions are a part of our cognition. So if we are telling people that they cannot feel emotion, which is one of the most fundamental aspects of our capacity to understand the world, then we are asking them not only not to show up, but to shut up. And we've all seen it in workplaces where there is something serious going on in the emotional realm and nobody can speak to it, you know? Yep. 
You said that emotions are crucial to everything we do in every aspect of our work. Can you define some of the emotions that you're referring to? Each emotion has a very specific purpose in cognition and decision-making and action. So for instance, anxiety, which most people have been taught is a problem. Anxiety's purpose is to help you focus and get ready to complete a task or to meet a deadline. So anxiety has some energy to bring you so that you can get on the task. And if you don't understand that energy, you may experience it as destabilizing, right? But if I go into a workplace and there is what they may call an anxiety problem, my first question is going to be, what is the workflow and what kind of downtime do people have and what are their schedules? Because I know what anxiety means and it's always about that, right? The people are being given too much or it turns out someone who was really important is on leave and they didn't replace that person. And now everybody's picking up that person's work, but they can't do their own. So anxiety will arise in the people and that's really necessary. But in, you know, happiness only workplaces, they would want to tamp that down and, and ignore that very clear signal of what's happening in the social structure. There's a lot of HR listeners on this podcast, and I want you to be open and honest with them. Has the HR profession been helpful in this respect with creating the type of workplace that you're describing? I am really, really sad to say no. I am a certified HR administrator. And I went into HR because I thought the workplace is so bad. HR are the only people who can fix it. But What I learned in my HR certification program was that mostly I behaved as a paralegal with hiring, firing, and benefits administration, right? I also got involved when there were like illegal things happening, like bullying or sexual harassment or, you know, racial profiling. Those are really important. You need people who are doing that. But in terms of the people in marketing being very particular about their work and taking longer than the people in production need them to. And there's, there's trouble happening between marketing and production that is emotional. That is not something that people would take to HR, right? Because that's not what HR does. And a number of people, it made me very sad. They would tell me about all this nonsense going on in the emotional realm in their workplace. I said, well, do you have an HR department? Come on, who's managing this? And people have said, no, HR is the last place I would go. Wow. And uh, I just went kind of thunk, you know, there's nothing. And I'm sure HR people would want to have people come to them. But I think the understanding is that HR works for the corporation. It doesn't work for the workers. Yeah, and I think, and I think another challenge with the HR profession, too, is they're spread so thin. I mean, there's yeah. so much to do. There's, there's open enrollment. There's investigations, as you described. There's uh, our benefit plan renewal. There's, as you call it, HR administration. That is the day-to-day work that yes. keeps them so busy. And even if they wanted to create a happier workplace, like where the hell did they even start? <laughs> yeah, I think HR has been so... They have been loaded down with this idea that that's their job, you know, that to make the workplace a healthy social and emotional environment. But 
They can't. That's not their job. Their job is to make sure that things are running legally and up to, you know, that everything's running smoothly in terms of the resource of humans, but not the interpersonal relationships of humans. So whose role is that? Well, sadly, it's manager's role. Mm -hmm. If you've got a good manager, you are probably in, at least in your part of the, you know, the organization, you're probably going to be protected, but the managers aren't taught this. Right. And even in HR, I had one course in psychology, right? So nobody's taught how to do this. And the idea that, you know, emotions belong at home, you're at work now, so be professional, is really getting in our way. Yeah, I think the the challenging part of what you just described there with managers being the key driver and creating a great workplace is that not all managers are created equal. They don't have the same training. Like I might have a great experience with my manager, but, you know, Susie over there in the other function, she might have a crappy manager and have a completely different experience and not bring her whole self to work, whereas I can. So it's just, it's so fragmented and that's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, it's really fragmented. And another thing about managers is, you know, many people are on a track of promotion that may be merit-based, but often isn't. And so a lot of people get promoted into management and they don't really have the skills they need. I've worked with a lot of people who they don't want to manage people. And they see that as a problem. And I'm like, no, it's not. You are really good with processes, right? You're like a process monster and you don't have time for people's little stuff. So no one should have put you into a management position and hoped that you would somehow change, you know, a basic feature of your humanity, (laughs) which is that, you know, like my husband is brilliant with process, but when people start acting up at work, he's just offended. He's like, uh, are you 12? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what is going on here? And so my husband got out of managing people and now he's managing data and he's happy as a little clam, right? And there are other people who are interested in that interpersonal stuff that people bring to work with them. So how do we move forward with the type of workplace that you're describing? What are, what are some of the first steps that you would take? I think the first steps are, and this is something I do when I go into workplaces, and it's so funny. Is it a physically comfortable place where people have peace and quiet when they need it? Most workplaces, nope. Mm -mm. So how do you create a place for human bodies to be in one place for eight or 10 hours so that the physical plant of the workplace isn't dragging them down? isn't giving them, I don't want to say bad emotions, isn't giving them a bad attitude because they're tired, they're overwrought, and they can't get any quiet. That would be the first thing is just bring a child in because children can see this. Bring bring a seven or to nine-year-old child in and say, is this a comfortable place to work? And the children will go to work because they haven't been socialized. (laughs) They'll be like, no, this is terrible. Where are the comfy couches? Right. But in many cases, the workplace doesn't even realize that it wasn't built for human bodies, for human ears, for human goodness, for human pelvises and low backs. You know, it just wasn't built for humans. And so that's one of the, you know, the main things that I talk about in the book is what are the rest times? What are the rest areas? Do people have the right to get up and stretch 
and get out for a minute and, and take care of themselves. Or are they just, you know, slammed eight hours a day. You're there. Take your 30-minute lunch and stop whining. Yeah. What are the four emotion families that you outline in the book? Because um, th- I think those help identify the emotions that we might feel throughout the day. Uh, we deal with this at home and at work. Um, and I, I think listeners would probably get a lot of value from hearing that from you. The four families, there are 17 emotions, but I organize them into four families. The happiness family, which looks forward to the future and is like, yeah, this is good. Um, The sadness family, which helps you let go and mourn things that are gone. This is really important in the workplace. As change happens, you really need the sadness family. The fear family, which is your instincts and intuition, uh, anxiety is in there as well. And that helps you identify any problems upcoming or current. And the final family is the anger family, which helps you understand boundaries, rules, ethics, and morals. So if you see a lot of anger in a workplace, then boundaries are definitely being crossed. And there's probably some kind of ethical or moral issue that is not being addressed in the workplace so people's anger is a continual reminder that things are not okay. And because we're so bad with anger, um, you know, we've all been trained away from anger. Instead of understanding, oh, something serious is going on, we're sort of like, um, we need to put in climbing walls and we need to have parties, <laughs> right? Which does absolutely nothing right. for the ongoing you know, boundary violation and ethical violation that's going on. So understanding what these families do and then seeing it as really valuable information that is somehow being thwarted or silenced in the workplace. Like I can go in and just just notice the emotions that are going on in a workplace and boom, I can diagnose what's happening pretty clearly. Um, it's fun. <laughs> Yeah. It's fun. It makes me look so brilliant. Right. But it's not brilliance. It's just understanding emotions, which are brilliant. Right. It's a part of our human nature, too. And that's why I had you outline those because at any given moment, we're going to experience any of those those families. Yeah. And the thing is, I, I, I'm worried that a lot of workplaces are just trying to suppress those emotions. Definitely. And as human beings, we need to cope with those or manage those or feel them, just feel them. And And listen to them. Right. Yeah. And why are we suppressing them? It's not good for us. I talk about, and this is from the research, there's something called a toxic positivity bias, which many workplaces have. Um, you know, the climbing walls and the parties and the ping pong tables. And, you know, we see that our people are unhappy, so let's move them into happiness. And the happiness family is extremely important, but its job is to tell you things are okay and let's move forward. This is awesome. If things are not okay, it's not time to move forward and it is not awesome. The happiness family would sort of look at you and go, my dude, (laughs) Why are you inviting me to this party? This is a terrible party. You need other emotions to deal with it. So it's kind of our emotional, our very poor emotional training as just as people, but it kicks up to like, you know, 11 when we get into the workplace because people are like saying, you know, why aren't my workers happy? And I would be like, what, why? That's a weird question. <laughs> why what why do you want happiness here is is there something to look forward to what is going on right but the way that we've been taught to look at happiness is that's the one you want all the time 
that's so true. Yeah. And then later on in the book, you were talking about how emotions, the ones we experience can both be exhausting, you know, uh, energy draining and, and fill us up. Um, how do we take inventory of those types of emotions that we experience? Because I think it's important to to recognize the emotions that that do give us some energy to go throughout the day, but as well as ones that like just strip us of our energy. Mm-hmm. The emotions that drain us do so for a very important reason, which is that it is not appropriate for us to have the energy to move forward doing what we're doing. And who wants to hear that, right? Who in the world wants to hear, no, this great idea you have is terrible and it's going to turn out really badly, (laughs) right? We're like, no, I hate you emotion. (laughs) But the emotions that drain us do so for extremely important reasons. And so it's so important to pay attention to them and ask, well, then what's wrong? instead of just trying to slap happiness on top of it or or increase our energy. And the emotions that energize us do so in very different ways, like anger is an excellent energy emotion. Um, Anger only arises in the presence of something you care about deeply. You can't get angry about things that don't matter. So it's a way to sort of mark, this matters. This matters to me. And if you have skills with your anger and you know how to work with the energy it brings you, most people don't. Most people take that energy and look for a weapon, right? If you know how to work with that energy, then you're going to be able to make incredible changes in places that are extremely important. But if you don't, that energy is going to be squandered. You wrote that empathy is a key driver in having a healthy workplace, which I fully agree with. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown's work, and I think empathy is a key component to that as well as vulnerability. What are some of the essential aspects of being more empathetic? Empathy is built entirely on emotions. To be empathic is to have emotional skills that translate into relationships. You can have emotional skills that are focused on yourself, but empathy is where you bring your emotional skills out into the world. And a lot of what I'm seeing with empathy right now is it's just sort of a nice, nice situation where, oh, how are you feeling? Oh, I I empathize. I'm like, oh, whatever. (laughs) You've had empathy training. Barf. Barf. But your empathy or anybody's empathy is predicated on your capacity to work with emotions. And so if you've got emotions you don't know how to work with and someone displays those emotions, your empathy may drop, you know, from 100 to zero in one second. So the aspects of empathy that are crucial are that you must understand all of the emotions and be able to feel and work with them in yourself at any level of activation so that when someone else comes to you with emotion, you won't get thrown into just reacting to the person because you don't know how emotions work and you don't know how to work them in yourself. So the foundation of all empathy is emotional skill and emotional awareness. And for many people, you know, the empathy they're learning in the workplace is really truncated kind of half quarter, one-tenth empathy that is just about, you know, reflective listening or whatever. Those are soft skills that a lot of people just don't have. Is there any advice you have on how people can develop those empathetic skills? One of the easiest and simplest is to increase your emotional vocabulary. That is fun because without doing anything else, if you just become more aware and more articulate about your emotions, that gives you emotion regulation skills right then. It's like a twofer. (laughs) 
It is so easy. <laughs> and then once you understand what emotions you're feeling, you could pick up the power of emotions at work and see what those emotions want you to do, what their purpose is. Let's get into some of the things that we can do to build a healthier workplace. Let's start with the environmental stuff. Uh, we did talk about the the devil's floor plan, uh, but there's got to be other things that we can do from an environmental standpoint to make the workplace better. What are some of the ideas that you have? Well, each workplace is different, but moving through the workplace and making sure that there are good boundaries between people, um, auditory, visual, and um, just physical, that people have a place to go go to be alone and to downregulate from all of the, you know, most workplaces are very intense, high contact places. And I think that's one of the reasons for the great resignation is people have been home and realized, wow, I never liked that. You know, I never liked having people up in my face all day. And so to give people an opportunity to have some private time at work. There's also something called repair stations. And this is from sociologist Irving Goffman's work, which is there need to be backstage places where people have the right and the invitation to be real, especially if they're in high contact customer service jobs, where a lot of times customers will just behave like goofballs or cranks, and you have to keep your smile up the whole time. Well, I see that that would make you feel very uncomfortable, sir. And let me see what I can do. You know what I mean? Instead of back off, you twerp, you know, like a person might say, right? So any place where people are doing a tremendous amount of emotional labor or empathic labor where they are managing their own emotions in the context of their workplace and helping other people manage their emotions. Those people are doing amazingly intense heavy lifting. And I have only rarely seen a place where that kind of labor is going on, where people have repair stations, where they can get out and go and just downregulate. That kind of work can be the most, the most likely for burnout because it's such an incredible amount of heavy lifting. There's also, uh, I talk about a wonderful break time tradition from Sweden called Fika. And anybody can call a Fika. And Fika is, uh, you drink something, you eat something sweet, and you talk about whatever you want to talk about. And it's an excellent way for people to get together and create human relationships in the workplace. Is this a place where humans can function and be and live comfortable lives? Usually, no. What are some everyday transitions in the workplace that we can make a little bit smoother for employees? And and when I say transitions, I mean things like death of a loved one, uh, maybe I have a baby, um, a moment, uh, maybe onboarding or a, a new hire experience, something like that, where there's these moments that are going to happen. How do we make them smoother so it's in the framework of what you're describing with this healthy workplace? Yeah, I talk about a number of transitions. And when I go into workplaces and there's just this pall, you know, this this cloud, there's almost always a badly handled transition that occurred. And it just sort of knocks the entire community down. Transitions like hiring, firing, people going on break, maternity leave, uh, moving from one building to another, changing the physical layout of a place, you're going to have to understand that you will see 
anger because it's about boundaries. You will see fear because it's about novelty and change. You will see anxiety because it's about what is the future going to be. You will see sadness about loss. You will see all kinds of emotions that are extremely important for people to be able to transition through there. If you have no process for those emotions to be identified or supported and you just want people to be happy, then all those necessary emotions are going to go underground and it's probably going to get toxic. Not because emotions are toxic or your workers are untrustworthy, but because you have created an emotionally unregulated environment. So just identifying what would a person feel if they lost their colleague and then seeing what you can do about it, right? It's grief. It's grief. And so what do you do for grief? What about having a, a wall someplace where people can write the remembrances? It's a human emotion. It's a human situation. Why does the workplace not have grief rituals? <laughs> right. Yeah, I so agree. <laughs> What's going on, workplace? Yeah. So if an organization is doing everything that you're describing, they're emotionally well-regulated, we don't want that to change. How do we nurture that so we don't reverse course and go back to the way things always have been? That's such a good question because we're surrounded by kind of emotionally toxic messages all day long, right? I mean, this is where leadership is important, not in terms of telling people what to do, but leaders being strongly modest and available and awake to maintaining their humanity throughout. Because the way that we've set up leadership is usually pretty hierarchical, which is power over, and people are below you, and... It's a very empathically and emotionally damaging thing to do to anyone, especially the leaders. So for leaders to say, I'm feeling really sad today and I don't know why, and to invite people to talk about what they know about sadness. And maybe it turns out sadness was the only thing that he could find or she could find. And all of a sudden, the community is involved in an emotional situation where they are being looked at as peers and not as underlings. Or, or for people to say, you know what, I failed so hard, we should have a new definition of failure because I thought this was going to be a great project and it's going so badly. So I need some help, right? To be a person, to have everybody be a person. It's so hard because the workplace doesn't want persons. They want cogs in a machine. Carla, this has been a phenomenal discussion, conversation. Your book is called The Power of Emotions at Work, Accessing the Vital Intelligence in Your Workplace. I, I encourage people listening and anybody else uh, to pick up the book. There's a lot of great stuff in there, uh, even like way more than what we even covered today. But I, I think this is a really good uh, starting point for people who are wanting to build the workplace that you're describing in the book, Carla. Where can people learn more about you and anything you're up to? My website, CarlaMcLaren.com, has a free emotional vocabulary list so you can get started today. And it's real free. It's not internet free. So you don't have to trade me anything for it. Um, and then um, my online learning site, EmpathyAcademy.org, has courses every month on specific emotions or emotions in general or empathy. So you could take an online course and um, uh, hang out with an empathic group of sort of wacky people. I mean, that's one of the rules. If you don't have a sense of humor, what are you doing at Empathy Academy? <laughs> <laughs> Carla McLaren, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.